0: This is going to be the best day ever. This is going to be the best day ever. Wake up. Top of the morning. The bacon is crispy. The coffee is pouring. My meditation is peeling an orange. The bank says I'm already scoring. Got a parking spot right outside. Step into my brand new ride. We go. All we ever get is green lights and blue skies. This is gonna be the best day ever. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace. And uh, like Colin said, too, if you're on live stream, just want to extend a very special welcome to you. We're super glad you're here. And uh, this week, we're actually on week three. We're in the third week of the series that we've been in uh, that is called Happy. And, uh, and so, of course, in this series, what we're doing is we are talking about happiness. That's the topic that we're dealing with. But we said, if you, if you missed the past couple of weeks, we said that we're actually approaching this topic from an interesting angle And what we're doing is we're actually looking at the introduction of the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And so uh, in the Bible, uh, we actually have the earliest recorded, longest sermon that we have uh, for us that that is from Jesus. And the the most famous sermon he ever preached is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you might be familiar with that. It's actually located in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And so as we kind of continue in this series together, I just want to invite you just right from the very beginning, why don't you get your Bible out, and why don't you get back with me to Matthew chapter 5. So we're going to pick up a little bit where we left off last week. To go to Matthew chapter 5 together. And so, if you got a Bible, flip open there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be some under the chairs if you're in the room, page 785 in those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, you can have one. You take one with you. We'd love for you to to have that uh, that Bible. So, Matthew chapter 5 is what we're looking at. And like I said, this is the introduction that we're looking at to the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what we said over the past couple of weeks we said, the Sermon on the Mount actually displays for us the most uh, revolutionary, famous teaching that Jesus ever gave. And he puts forth for us in the Sermon on the Mount an absolutely countercultural, paradoxical, revolutionary way of life. And so this is basically Jesus's distillation of all of his teachings on something that is called the kingdom, that this is what it looks like to live as a person who follows Jesus. And it's an upside down way of living. It's a revolutionary way of living. And what's fascinating fascinating is when you look at Jesus's most famous sermon that where he starts his sermon his introduction to his sermon he does not begin by putting forth a set of religious principles he doesn't set out a list of moral standards that he wants us to live by that's actually not where he starts he doesn't begin by establishing religious requirements that we need to adhere to interestingly where Jesus begins his most famous sermon is he actually starts by talking about the idea of happiness he actually begins by talking about the idea of fulfillment and well-being and pursuing wholeness in this life. In fact, we said that the first 10 verses of Matthew 5, the introduction to a sermon, is sometimes called the Beatitudes. It's actually a very famous passage of the Bible. It's called the Beatitudes. And we said Beatitude is just a real fancy word that just means blessed. And we said that blessed is a word that can actually be translated as happy. And so interestingly, when Jesus begins his most famous sermon, what he does is he actually starts by affirming the age-long desire that every single one of us has inside of us for happiness, for well-being, for for, for, uh, fulfillment in this life. And so Jesus is going to start there. And I think what that tells us is that Jesus is going to affirm that we all have a desire to be happy, and that's actually a desire that is God-given. It's not a bad desire, it's a good desire. And it's actually a desire. The desire that all of us have for fulfillment is a desire that God has put inside of us, and it's a desire that God Himself wants to satisfy. Now, what we said over the past couple of weeks, though, is, is this we said that the pathway that Jesus is going to reveal to us to true happiness is absolutely countercultural and paradoxical to the way that we think. Jesus is going to reveal to us a strikingly different way to happiness that our culture tends to pursue. And I think what that tells us is Jesus is going to reveal to us that maybe we are looking for happiness in all the wrong places, that maybe the pathway to true fulfillment and to true happiness in this life is not what we first would think. And so a couple weeks ago when we started the series, we did an introduction. Uh, During that introduction, we talked about happiness within our culture. We also talked about an introduction to the Beatitudes. Last week, we started to go one by one through these Beatitudes that we have. And so last week, we actually spent the entire time simply looking at three, the first three of those Beatitudes. Today, we're going to pick it up, and we're going to keep going through the Beatitudes, and we're going to look at the next four. So we're going to spend our whole day today thinking about four of the Beatitudes that we see in uh, Jesus' teaching. So let's go ahead. Let's read Matthew chapter five. We'll, uh, we'll go back to uh, verse one and uh, we'll review a little bit. And then I'll show you the four that we're going to be looking at here today. All right. So Matthew chapter five, verse one it says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, okay, so notice Jesus is going to start. This is the beginning. This is the introduction to his most famous sermon he ever gave. And how does he start? He starts by saying, blessed, or happy, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now again, just to remind you, last week, we spent the entire time talking about these three. And so if you missed that, you might want to go back and check that out. We talked about these three. Now here's the four that we're going to look at here today. All right, so he goes on, he says this. So we're going to spend our time looking at these four Beatitudes that we have here in front of us. Before we start doing that, before we start picking these apart, I want to remind you of something we said last week that I think is really important to understanding the Beatitudes, and that's this. Sometimes when we read these statements from Jesus, these, these series of Beatitudes, sometimes we can make the mistake of reading them as random, that they're just these random unrelated one-liners that Jesus is just dropping, like a, like a series of fortune cookies that Jesus is throwing out there or something. And what we said last week is we said, that's actually a mistake. We said that the Beatitudes, when you actually look at them and you study them, what you're going to see is that they are vitally and deeply connected to each other. And we put it this way, we said the Beatitudes are sequential. Uh, they build to something, they, they lead to something. And so you can't understand one beatitude without understanding how it's connected to the previous one. And what it builds for us is it builds a pathway to the blessed life. It builds a pathway to the picture of what it means to be a fulfilled person according to Jesus. That's what it builds up to. And so because of that, last week we looked at the first three. We said you can't, you have to start with the first three. You can't go further until you look at the first three. And basically, if I could just summarize what we said last week, the first three Beatitudes are all about emptying yourself. That's what they're all about. It's about coming to the end of yourself and surrendering yourself to God. That's what the first three, be. Jesus is gonna say, the starting point of happiness is actually to come to the end of yourself and it's to surrender yourself to God. That's what poor in spirit, mourning, and meek means. So that was last week. So this week, what these four are all about, and this is just what I believe, I believe these four are about, so now that a person is emptied, what is God going to fill that emptied person with? When a person empties themselves and surrenders themselves to God, how is God now going to fill that emptied person? That's what I think these next Beatitudes are about. So what's the first thing it's going to tell us? Well, the first thing that's going to happen, the Bible's going to tell us, is that when you are in an emptied place and you're surrendered to God, is that God is going to fill you up with a new appetite. He's going to replace that with a new appetite in you. And what is the appetite? He's going to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says for they will be filled. So there's going to be a new appetite. What's the new appetite? It is that you will hunger and you will thirst for righteousness. And he says, and when you do, you will be blessed and you will be filled. You'll be blessed and you'll be filled. Now, b- before I explain what righteousness means, because that's, that's actually very, very important, I want to first point out something that I think is often missed, but I think it's an incredibly critical observation about human happiness that Jesus is giving us here. I think what Jesus is saying here is absolutely revolutionary. And what's that? I want you to notice, when you look at this beatitude, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. He doesn't say that. In other words, he doesn't say happy are people who run after being happy. He doesn't say that. I think this is a critically important observation that Jesus is making. I like the way one, uh, one uh, pastor said it, a guy by the name of uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is a very famous pastor, preached many sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. and I love what he said. This is what he said. He said, according to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. He goes on to say this. He says, we are not meant to hunger and thirst after experiences, we are not meant to hunger and thirst after emotional highs. We are not meant to hunger and thirst after blessedness, after happiness. Now, notice what he says. If we want to be truly happy and we want to be truly blessed, we must hunger and thirst after something different. And what is it that we must hunger and thirst after? He's going to say it is righteousness. We have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, again, I think this is a really important, a really important truth because what, what Jesus, I think, is showing us is that happiness happiness should never be our goal. Happiness is actually a byproduct of something else. And as long as we're chasing after happiness, we're always going to find ourselves increasingly more hungry to be happy. This is something that we have talked about over the past couple of weeks. I believe our culture is learning this the hard way. We said that right now we live in a time and place uh, that is sometimes called the happiness movement. We live in the midst of the happiness movement, and what that means—I don't know if you've ever heard of that before—but the past 15 to 20 years in our society, there has been an increased intensity to pursue happiness, and so there's more books about happiness, there's more seminars about happiness, there's more podcasts about how do you become a fulfilled and happy person than there ever were before. And interestingly, in the midst of that same period of time, our nation has grown increasingly more anxious, increasingly more depressed, and increasingly more sad. And why is that? I think it's because Jesus understands something, that if you aim at happiness, you'll never get it. You'll never get it. You have to aim at something different. And what is it? Well, again, notice what he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst... For righteousness, for righteousness. So, what's that mean? All right. Well, let's just think about hunger and thirst for a minute. So, I think all of us—we probably don't need to spend too much time on it. All of us know what it means to hunger and thirst. Uh, I do think what's important, though. I thought this was interesting. The word for hunger in the original language doesn't just mean that you like—you know—like you, you have a little bit of a craving for something. That's not the word. The word literally means to be famished, or it means to be starving. Uh, that's, that's an experience that, quite honestly, probably none of us have ever had before. But th- the idea is that this is more than just a craving. This is a desperation. Okay, this is a longing. This is, a, this is an insatiable uh, uh, um, appetite within you that moves you to action. It's desperate, is what it is. And here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are desperate. Desperate for what? For righteousness, is what he says. For righteousness, okay. So what is righteousness? All right, righteousness is, unfortunately, it's one of those words we just don't use in our common language. Like, I don't remember the last time I heard someone say righteous in a conversation. Like, I can't remember going up to someone and being like, how are you doing today? They're like, well, I'm fairly righteous today. Like, I've never had that happening before, right? And I think because it's a word that's outside of our vocabulary, we tend to dismiss it as just being a religious cliche, but I think that's a mistake. It's actually a really important uh, uh, word to understand. So what does the word righteous mean? Well, it comes from the, the Greek word, and the Greek word is decay isune, That's is how that's pronounced. And it means the act of doing what is in agreement with God's standards. It's the state of being in a proper relationship with God, and it stands in opposition to the idea of lawlessness. So what does it mean? It means to, to It means to... To be in agreement, it means to live in alignment with God's desires and with God's design. That's what it means. That's what the idea of righteousness. To put it as simply as I know how to, I'll just put it in my own words. Here's how I put it. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the desire to be free from sin, free from sin. Now by sin, by the way, what I mean is anything that's outside of God's desires and anything that's outside of God's design, simply put, the Bible's gonna call that sin. What is righteousness? It is hungering and thir- or, uh, what is what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It is hungering and thirsting for the desire to be free from sin in all of its forms, in all of its manifestations, in my life and in the world, and to see things put right. I want to see things put right according to God's desire and according to God's design. That's what the idea of righteousness is all about. Now, let me just tell you: anytime I teach, anytime I get an opportunity to teach the Bible, whenever I come across an abstract idea. I always try to think of a concrete analogy to help make sense. So let me tell you the the best analogy that I have for righteousness, all right? So this is what I came up with. I actually brought with me um, a Lego creation, all right? So I'm gonna bring this out real quick. So this is is the Hogwarts Castle um, right here. And this is my son. He, I asked my son if I could borrow this. I said, buddy, can I borrow your, he got this for Christmas or something from his grandma, and it was like something he'd been asking for for a long time. He's like, dad, can I have, so we, we got, it. I said, buddy, can I borrow that for a sermon illustration? And it, it took me a little bit of talking to him, but he let me borrow it. He said, I'll let you borrow it. He said, under, under one condition. I said, what's that? He says, you need to be very careful with it. So I'm being very careful with it, all right? So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, just for illustration's sake, that this Hogwarts castle represents righteousness, all right? You're like, how? All right, here's how. So this, this Hogwarts castle um, is designed very intricately, right? So there is a creator who is behind this who designed each piece specifically, informed each piece specifically, that it would fit together and it will be put together in a right relationship in such a way that it would form something that's good and something that's beautiful, right? Something that's cool and something that's pleasurable. And so each one of these pieces, when my son created this, he spent hours and hours creating this thing. And when he did that, he spent intricacy, or or he spent so much time intricately putting each piece in its right place, in right relationship to all the other pieces around it, all right? Now, if you can get that in your mind, this right here is a picture of righteousness. Everything is in its right place. Everything is in the place that it was designed to be and it's good and it's right according to the designer. Now if you can get that picture in your mind the Bible's going to say that when God created when God created creation that he created everything with righteousness that he that God created everything to be in a right order to be within a right design as he has so intended it to be. And so God's created everything to be good. And so when God created human relationships he created them to function a certain way. When God God designed marriage from the very beginning, he designed it a very specific way, a way that was righteous, a way that was according to his design. When God created human sexuality he created it in such a way that was righteous. It was according to his created design. It was created good. It was created, all of it was created good, and it was beautiful. When God created society, the way that he desired society to look, he designed all of those things in such a way that they were intended to be righteous. But all of us know how the story goes. The Bible tells us that ever since Genesis chapter three, humankind decided to rebel against God and seek autonomy. And when we did that, what happened was we broke God's design. We went against what God created. And sin, the Bible's going to call that sin, has serious effects, and it breaks the righteousness that God desires. So Genesis 3 is going to tell us that what happened in creation is that there was a fall, right? There was a a fall. You guys pick it up what I'm putting down? There was a fall. Yeah. That was pretty good. You guys legitimately gasped. People still do that. People still, you guys gasp, that's crazy. All right, so before I go on with the message, let me just tell you, my son totally knew I was gonna do that, all right? So before you go thinking I'm a jerk dad, I was like, buddy, can I break your stuff? And he's like, totally, so we're cool, all right? But, but this is the idea, it's, it's now, it's, it's broken now, right? And so when the Bible says, listen, when the Bible says that God's people should be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what's that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. God's creation, God's right relationships that he's designed everything to be, the way that God has created the family and he's created society and he's created relationships, the Bible's gonna say that all of that now is broken and that now there is, when we look into the world, what do we see? We see unrighteousness. We see unrighteousness. We see that things are not the way that God has created and intended them to be. That's what we see. So, What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Here's what it means. It means that God's people are filled with a desperation inside of our heart that we desperately want to see it put back together again. We desperately want to see God's will done in our lives and in the world that we see around us. We, we long, we hunger and thirst for this stuff to be made right again, for this stuff to be put back together the way that God intended it according to his good design. That's what it means. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, I know for some of you, even right now, even right now, you're having a hard time paying attention to me. And the reason is because you're like, dude, is someone going to clean that up? Like someone's got to come. And for you, you're like, I can't focus. If, like some of you OCD types, you're like, I can't focus if that mess is on the stage. Are you going to preach the whole sermon with that on the stage? And the answer is yes. I'm going to preach the whole sermon with this on this stage. But that feeling that you have, that feeling that you're like something, someone needs to make that right. Someone needs to clean that up. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means we look into our society. It means that we look into our world, and we desperately want it to be cleaned up. We want it to be fixed, and according to God's design and God's desires. I think this is part of why the Bible's going to say stuff like this like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 136, he says, my eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Why are you so moved? Why are you mourning? Why are you so desperate? Because people don't keep your law. When I look into the world around me, I see lawlessness. I see brokenness. I see unrighteousness. That's what breaks the the, the hearts of God's people, so the Bible is going to tell us when when a person surrenders her life to God, God is going to put inside of them a new appetite. And what's that appetite going to be? It's going to, I want to see God's I want to see God's restored order in my life and in the world around me. And I think when you begin to understand that, when you begin to understand that, what you see is that this beatitude right here is deeply, deeply, deeply relevant to the time and place that we live right now. It just is. I think so many people, so many of us, so many of us who follow Jesus, and I know not everyone here follows Jesus, but so many of us, when we look into the world around us, what do we see? We see unrighteousness. What do we see? We see brokenness. What do we see? We see that it's not the way that God designed it. It's not the way that God ordered it. And it causes us to groan. It hurts us. We hunger. We're desperate to see it different. I mean, even just, I mean, you guys even just think this past year, even just this past week, what we have seen in our world, in our community, it just leaves us hungry to say we want to see something different. I mean, what do we see in the world that we look at? We see human life devalued. We see relationships as God has designed them shattered. Human life totally devalued, whether that shows up, shows up in a myriad of different ways, whether it shows up in racism whether it shows up in hate crimes, whether it shows up in vengeance. We see it whether it shows up in abortion. And we look and we say that's not supposed to be that way. What do we see in our world? We see broken homes. We see broken families. We see fatherless children. And we look at it and we say that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way. And and it causes us to hunger and thirst for something to be different. What do we see when we look at the world around us? We see that God's design, God's design is often criticized. And many times God's design is ignored entirely. And God's people, what do we do? We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. And just like physical hunger should move us. Physical hunger, we shouldn't just be okay with that appetite. It drives us into action. The Bible's going to say that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, we should be propelled into action. It should move us to do something. And here's the question. If Christians are supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be desperate to do something, what is it that we do? How do followers of Jesus respond and react to the brokenness that we see in the world around us and in ourselves? How do we respond? And at this point in the message, some of you might be thinking, I see what's coming, depending on what your church background is and what your church interactions have been in the past. Some of you might be expecting that at this point, it's the point in the sermon where I'm going to pound a pulpit with my fist. And I'm going to talk about how the world looks nothing the way that God wants it to look like. And therefore, God hates the world because the world is going to hell. And therefore, you should hate the world too. Some of you are expecting me to do that. And let me just tell you, if that's what you're expecting, it's not coming. And the reason it's not coming is, well, first off, because I don't have a pulpit. I just don't have a, I don't even have a music stand. The only thing I had was Legos, and I broke those, so I can't do that. But here's the bigger reason. The reason I'm not going to do that is because of what the Bible teaches. And what does the Bible say? Well, I think we have to remember stuff like this. Look at James 1.20. James 1.20 says that human anger, human anger, some of us look at this, and we're just mad. We're mad. Human anger does not produce the, say it with me, the righteousness that God desires. This is very important. The Bible tells us God desires righteousness. God has a longing to see things put back together the way he intended and created them to be. But God is also extraordinarily clear that the way in which he wants that righteousness to be pursued is not, definitively not, through human anger. Human anger is not going to produce the righteousness that God desires. So how do Christians respond? How do we respond to the brokenness in the world? Well, remember, that leads to the next beatitude, because the Beatitudes are connected and they're sequential. And so what's the next Beatitude? Look what Jesus says next. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think this is incredibly, incredibly powerful and paradoxical what Jesus says. Jesus is calling those of us to follow him, to live lives that are so, so weird, And why is that? Because he tells us that Christians are people, Christians are people who should abhor, we should abhor and we should mourn sin and unrighteousness in the world in sin and unrighteousness in ourselves. But at the very same time, we are called for those who follow Jesus to be people who are deeply merciful, deeply merciful, that our hunger and thirst for righteousness drives us to show mercy, to be people who are merciful. Now, the word mercy, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time defining that. I think a lot of us know what mercy is. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion. It can also be translated as benevolence or kindness. It's being moved with compassion and acting in compassion. And so what the Bible's gonna tell us is that Christians are to be really weird people because we're to be people who both hate sin and mourn sin, but also act in mercy in the midst of the brokenness that we see, all around us. I think it's amazing. Now some of you might be saying, well that sounds enigmatic. Like which one is it? Are we supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness or are we supposed to hunger and thirst for mercy? I think what Jesus is saying is, yes, yes. I love the way one author put it, a guy by the name of Ian Doogood. He wrote an excellent book by the way, it's called The Hero of Heroes and it is seeing Christ in the Beatitudes. It's an excellent read. Here's what he said. I thought this was really great. He said Christians are never soft. They never say that sin doesn't matter. They have a true understanding of the way the world really is. They recognize that sin is people's fault and that serious consequences come when God's law is broken. They see the magnitude of people's debt to God and they try to help other people see their debt to God. They mourn over sin wherever it occurs, whether their own sin or the sin of others. And look what he says next, look at this. He says, true mercy recognizes the reality of sin. And the fact that so many of our problems stem from our sinful ways of relating to one another. But true mercy doesn't stop with a recognition of the reality of sin. True mercy goes on, and with eyes wide open, it forgives anyway. Christians are to be the most forgiving people. We're not to be soft, but we're not to be hard either. So I love what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, Christians aren't people who are detached from the reality that there's brokenness and unrighteousness in the world. Christians don't ignore this and pretend like everything's Okay. But at the same time, he says, when Christians look at the brokenness, they're moved. They're moved to what? They're moved to show mercy. And so Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, why in the world would Christians be people who are so eager to show mercy in the midst of brokenness and unrighteousness? Why would we do that? And here's the answer the answer is, remember, because of the first three Beatitudes, they're connected. And what are the first three Beatitudes? Christians are people who recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we ourselves are spiritually bankrupt. We mourn over sin inside of ourselves and we recognize that we are so dependent upon the mercy of God. And so the reason that followers of Jesus are to be people who move forward with mercy is because we are people who are in recognition that God has been so merciful to us. God, God who also abhors sin, came to us who are sinners, and rather than showing us condemnation, he showed us mercy. And I think that when a follower of Jesus, I think that when those of us who follow Christ, when we're not quick to show mercy, when we're more quick to show condemnation than mercy, I think it reveals that maybe we are blind to the fact that God has been so merciful to us. It has to start there. It has to start there. Absolutely has to start there. Listen, I, I think, and this again, I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus, but for those of us who do follow Jesus, I think this is really important. I think what the world feels from us more often than not is not our mercy, but it's probably our condemnation. It's probably our contempt more than anything else. When when the world, when, when those who don't follow Jesus, and some of you are in that category right now, you don't follow Jesus, and maybe you would attest to this, that what you feel from the Christian community more often than not is not mercy in the midst of your brokenness, but what you feel is contempt in the face of your brokenness. Now listen, I'm not just making that up. There's all kinds of, of, of different things that have been out there that prove that this is the case. Uh, there was a study that was done just a few years ago, actually, by a group called the Gray, the, uh, gray Matter Research Group. This was done about 10 years ago or so. And basically what they did was they surveyed, uh, they did this massive survey across American culture to figure out what is, the, um, what is the response and what is the perception of evangelicals in America today. And so the word evangelical, we could go back and forth on what that means, but let me just say that if you're a follower of Jesus and you're someone who professes faith in Christ, you would be lumped in in the category of evangelical. So, how does our culture view evangelicals today? Well, it probably doesn't surprise you what they found. Here's what Gray Research discovered evangelicals were called illiterate, greedy, psychos, racist, stupid, narrow minded, bigots, idiots, fanatics, nutcases, screaming loons, delusional, simpletons, pompous, morons, cruel, nitwits, and freaks. And that's just a partial list. Some people don't have any idea what evangelicals actually are or what they believe. They just know that they can't stand evangelicals. And I'll tell you, when I read that, my first thought was, well, I think that's a little unfair. I think that's an unfair caricature for sure. I also wondered, I wonder who they surveyed exactly. But at the same time, can we just all that aside, can we just say this? Some, some of this is self-inflicted. Some of it is, is not surprising, and some of it is self- is absolutely self-inflicted. Listen. I think it's so important that we understand this. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ, for those of us who follow, and I hope you hear me correctly, we cannot, we cannot show contempt for those who don't follow Jesus and don't share our values and then demand that they live their life a certain way. We cannot do that. None of us could live a Christian life apart from Jesus Christ. We couldn't. And for us to look at other people and demand that they live a certain way and show contempt for the way of life that they have and to simply leave it at that would be absolutely obtuse. It would be obtuse for us to do that. And so I think this is part of why Jesus says, why Jesus says that blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. I think that in light of this, it actually causes those of us who follow Jesus to ask some pretty important questions. And I think maybe this would be a few of them. I think a few questions would be this. In light of the brokenness that we see in the world, in light of the mess that we see around us, the unrighteousness that, that just shrouds our culture that's all around us, I think the first question is we have to ask, do I desire mercy or do I desire condemnation? What's my go-to? When I see brokenness in the world, when I see brokenness in the media, when I see unrighteousness in our community, what's my first go-to? Do I feel mercy or do I feel condemnation? Do I feel contempt? They've got to ask ourselves this question. Do I feel compassion or do I feel calloused? Is my heart broken or is my heart hardened when I see all of this out here? They've got to ask this question. Am I quick to help or am I quick to retreat? Is my go-to just to get as far away from it as possible? I don't want anything to do with that. Like, it's a very important question that we need to ask, and I think that Jesus is bringing it up as he, brings up the, as he brings up the idea of the Beatitudes here. And I know Some of you might be thinking this. You might be thinking, okay, well, if what you're saying is that Christians are to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and that we should act in mercy, so that means we should just be compassionate, and we should be loving, and we should just forgive people, and we should just love. That's all, that's all we ever do is just love. We just love people, just love them all the time. Some of you might be thinking, that sounds all good and nice, but that's not going to actually change anything, right? So what are we actually going to do about the? Aren't we being soft on sin? Aren't we compromising if we do that? And that leads to the next beatitude. Because remember, we need them all. And so what's the next one? Well, Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. All right, what's that mean? And how is this one connected to this one? Because they're all connected. So let me tell you what I think. So for some of us, when we read pure in heart, how we tend to interpret that is we think that that means that you're blameless in heart. It means that you are without sin, that you have pure motives and pure intentions, and that there's no sin in you at all. And let me just say that whatever this beatitude means, it doesn't mean that. And the reason is, and the reason I know that, is because the Bible is very clear that Christian or not non-Christian, the one thing we have in common is we all struggle with sin. We all do. There is no one who is absolutely pure in heart. There's only one who is totally pure in heart, and it's not us. It was Jesus. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, I think what it means to be pure in heart, this is helpful. The word pure is also translated single or undivided. undivided. It's the idea of being unmixed. And so what is Jesus saying here? Here's what I think he's saying. Blessed are those who are undivided in their loyalties of their heart. In other words, blessed are those, blessed are those who are fully transparent with their struggles, who are fully transparent that they're imperfect people, but who are who are striving after a single-minded devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. Someone that's that is that someone that is in the world, in the world, mercifully showing and loving, but at the same time is not of the world. Looks categorically different than the world that we live in. Because he's calling us to. I think in a lot of ways that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the very first place that we are to to address un, unrighteousness. And to go after it is in our own heart. That Christians are people who go hard after unrighteousness. That so before we start pointing out all the unrighteousness around us in the world, that we first start by addressing the hypocrisy that exists inside of ourself. And he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. I think in a lot of ways, what he's saying here dovetails with what James says. So this is what James says. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. That we are to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and that we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. We're to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Now, what does that mean, to be keeping yourself from being polluted by the world? I think it's this idea of saying, I'm in the world, but I'm not becoming like the world. See, the sad truth is that Christians today, many followers of Jesus, look statistically identical to everyone else in our society. Most Christians look statistically identical as it relates to sexuality and pornography, to the rest of the world around us. Most Christians look statistically identical as it relates to marriage and divorce. Most Christians look statistically identical as it relates to spending habits and lifestyle choices. I think what Jesus is saying is the first place that we're to go after unrighteousness, the very first place, is not unrighteousness out here. It's unrighteousness in here that we begin there blessed are the pure in heart. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, if this says that the whole point is that we're to keep ourselves from being polluted from the world, doesn't that mean that we should live an insulated, isolated, sanitized, quarantined life away from all of this mess? Like, is that what the Bible's saying? We ought to just huddle up, stay away from the messiness of the world and just have a Christian subculture where all we do is listen to Christian music and eat testaments. You guys know what testaments are? They're legit, they're, they're mints, It's like, this is like Christian subculture to the max. There are mints that are called testaments. I kid you not, that's a real thing. So you're like, is that what we should do? Should we just huddle up, us four, no more, shut the door? Is that what we ought to do? And that's where we need the last beatitude that we're gonna look at today, which I think is so unbelievably important. Look what Jesus says next. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says, for they will be called children of God blessed are the peacemakers. You guys, I think this one is so powerful, what Jesus is saying about human happiness. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Again, notice this. He doesn't say, blessed are those who find peace, for they will for they will be called children. It's not what he says. He doesn't say, blessed are those who find peace and quiet, because then they're going to be really happy. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says something very different than what our culture says. Here's what our culture says. Culture says you want to be happy, you want to be fulfilled, you want to find well-being and peace of mind, then the way you do that is you need to disconnect from the messiness of the world. You need to get away from the brokenness, and you need to find peace and quiet. You need to retreat. That's what you need to do. You need to find a nice little spot where there's no brokenness around you, and you just need to rest there. That's where true happiness is found. And I'm just going to show you, Jesus tells us something very different. Jesus says, no. Blessed, happy, fulfilled are those who are the peacemakers. And by the way, to be a peacemaker necessarily insinuates that that means that you are involved in the mess. Not that you distance yourself from it, but that you actually engage yourself in it for the purpose of bringing peace. For the purpose of bringing peace. I'll tell you something I think is so cool. The word peace that's used in the Bible. It's such a powerful word. It's actually the word in the Greek, it's the word erene, and it means to join or bind together that which has been separated. It means to bring into harmony or to make something whole again. And it actually is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Some of you have heard that before. Shalom is actually a Jewish greeting. When people they say peace, shalom. But here's what I think is so cool. In our language, the word peace, when we tend, tend to think of peace, the way we tend to think of it is we think it's the absence of conflict. So what is peace? Peace is the absence of conflict. It's the absence of brokenness. It's the absence of war. But I want you to understand that biblical peace is much more robust than that. Biblical peace is, yes, it's the absence of conflict, but much more than that, it is the presence. Listen, it is the presence of wholeness. It is the presence of righteousness, Biblical peace is this. It is the deep desire for the broken things in this world to be put back together. That's what true peace is. And true peace is saying, I won't rest, and I can't retreat if this is happening because there's not peace. There's not peace. And even though I feel at peace, and even though there's quiet in my life, there's brokenness over here, and that means that there's not peace. And so I have to be involved in what's happening over here if I'm truly gonna be someone who seeks after I think that's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. So many of us maybe think that the true pathway to happiness is that we should run away from brokenness. But I think what Jesus is revealing is that the true path to true fulfillment is that we actually involve ourselves in it. Here's what I is going on. I think this is a call from Jesus to personal involvement, that we should be personally involved, that we should engage we should engage in the brokenness we see around us. How should we engage? With mercy, with mercy, and with a pure heart, with integrity, but we should seek after making peace around us. Listen, here's the truth. So many of us, so many of us in this room, myself included, we feel such discouragement and we feel such despair about where our culture is going. Many of us feel that way, but I think what Jesus is calling us to here is he's calling us, he's calling us to reach out with mercy. And to wade into the messiness and maybe even this, maybe even invite that mess into our own lives for the purpose of bringing peace rather than making the mistake of retreating into contempt, which is so, so, so easy for us to do. Some of you might be thinking, well, where do you start? If we're gonna be peacemakers, where do you begin? Where do you begin? I mean, the mess is so big. Where do we begin? And let me tell you where we start. We start with ourselves, We start with ourselves. We start by making peace with God and seeking righteousness in our own lives. We start by recognizing that we need God and we can't be righteous without him. And so we have to begin by being poor in spirit, by calling out to him and asking him to save us. That's where it begins. But I think it moves on from there. I think then it moves into our relationships. It moves into our friendships. It moves into our family. It moves into our marriage. Before we start seeking peace in the world, we have to start seeking peace in our home. We have to start looking at where is their bitterness, where is there unforgiveness that exists in my relationships, where is their brokenness that's that things are not aligned with God's desires. I need to start there. I need to start there. But I don't think it ends there. I think from there it goes into our world and it goes into our community. And some of you might be like, well, what does it look like to bring peace into our community? Well, I'll just give you a few suggestions. Maybe, maybe here's one. What if this? What If if you're a person maybe that finds yourself deeply discouraged and frustrated with the devaluing of human life, if you're a person that feels that way, maybe, for example, you're someone who's just vehemently against abortion, which followers of Jesus should be. It's unrighteous. It's not what God desires for us. What if, rather than resorting to airing out your opinion on social media and simply resigning yourself to contempt, what if, what if you decided instead that you're going to get involved? And what if you said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get involved with, I don't know, organizations like, how about this? Oasis of Hope. I don't know if you guys know Oasis of Hope. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ministry that's right here in our own community in Medina. And get this, this is crazy. Oasis of Hope works with, get this, real people. Like real people. Not philosophies and ideologies. They work with real people who are making real decisions, who are going through real challenging times. And what if, in our hunger and thirst for righteousness, we said we want to move forward as people who want to show mercy and we want to be involved in showing peace, and we engage in something like that? You could do that. Or what about this? What if instead of conjecturing about what's wrong with the American family and philosophizing about where the American family truly has broken down and this is what we need to do to regain the values in our country, which that's fine, but what if also, on top of that, what if we said, you know what, I'm going to be involved? maybe I'm going to get connected to things like safe families. Many people in our church are involved in safe families. They work with the foster care system here in Medina County. They actually wade into the brokenness of broken homes, inviting that mess even in their own homes. Why? Because blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who seek after peace. What if we said, you know what, I'm going to be involved in something like Love, Inc., loving in the name of Christ, They actually seek after real needs of real people within our community to create relational bridges, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. What if we were serious about making peace? Because here's what Jesus says. He says that happiness, happiness in fulfillment is actually found there. It's found there. And it's so paradoxical to the way we think. What if this, those of us who are followers of Jesus, what if we actually got serious about making disciples? What if we got serious about that? Like for real, like legitimately, we're like, we're gonna get serious about making disciples. Listen, let me me just tell you something. Disciple making is about coming next to another person who doesn't know God or who's far from God, introducing them to God and helping them learn how to walk with God. That's what disciple making is. And listen, I just wanna tell you, I don't think that disciple making is the only way that we bring peace to the brokenness in the world, but can I be really honest with you? It is the primary way that our Lord and Savior pointed to. He said, go and make disciples. This is how you're gonna bring my kingdom to this earth. I was reminded of the power of disciple-making not too long ago. I listened to a message by a guy named Ryan Lowry. He's a pastor down in Columbus. Here's what he said. I thought this was so powerful. He was giving his testimony. He said, I am personally the result of the strategy of disciple-making. Then he goes on. He says, I was a sexually active teen. I was a hater of the church. I was a hater of the Bible. What little I knew about the Bible, I didn't like. And then someone came into my life and they shared Jesus Christ with me and they showed me who God really is and they really worked with me. And then I love what he says here. He says, I brought my life under God's loving guidance and I lived as a follower of Jesus for about five years. He says, and then I got married and then I had kids. And then he says, and now I'm a middle-aged man, which I can relate with, I am too. And then I love what he says next, check this out. He says, if that hadn't happened, I would have done what everyone else in my class would have done. I would have been sexually active until I was 30. God only knows how many abortions I would have been part of. I would have been married and divorced, and who knows how many times. I don't know how many horrible things that Christians are supposed to be united against have been avoided because Jesus Christ has come into my life. Now, sometimes people ask the question, what is the church going to do about abortion? What is the church going to do about racism? What is the church going to do about this issue, about that issue, about broken families? What is the church going to do? I think we just need to be reminded, listen, the church, the church is not the church is not a program. The church is not a person. The church is a people. And it's a people, listen, it's a people who are poor in spirit, who are spiritually bankrupt. It's a people who mourn over sin in our lives. It's people who are meek, who say, God, we need you. It's a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a group of people who are desperate to move in mercy, who desire to be pure in heart and wanna be peacemakers. And I believe that when God's people come together like that, we make a big difference. What is the church doing about those things? I'll tell you, one of the things we're doing is we're inviting people who are far from God and we're introducing them to Jesus Christ and helping them know how to follow him. And let me just tell you, that is not a small thing. That is not a small thing. There's more we can do, for sure, but that's not a small thing. In the next few weeks, we're actually going to talk about even more ways to get connected, but let me, just, let me just end with this bottom line. This is the bottom line. I think the truth is, the truth is, we can't do everything, all right? But for many of us who follow Jesus, we look at the mess, we look at what's happening in the world, and we just feel like, I can't do it all. I can't do it all. You can't do it all. I can't be involved in every ministry. I can't be involved in every family thing. I can't do Oasis of Hope and Love, Inc. and Make Disciples and do a, I can't do all that. You can't do all of that. But here's what I also know. We can't do nothing. We can't do nothing. It's too easy sometimes to just be so exhausted and and feel so tired of everything that we see around us and feel so overwhelmed that we just resign ourselves to retreating into contempt. I think the point is we have to do something gotta do something. And we have to be people who strive to make peace. And I believe that when you have a room this size and a church this big of people who are, who are dedicated to making peace, that we can make a big difference. We can make a big difference. So where does it start? Well, I, I can't answer that question for you, but I would encourage you to do this. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to pray. Start by praying. Ask your Father in heaven, God, how can I be someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? How can I be someone who seeks peace? I think he wants to answer that prayer. I think if you ask him, I think he'll help you see. The other thing I would encourage you to do is I'd encourage you to look into it. Look into it. Look into ways that you can get connected and you can get involved. One of the greatest places I might point you to is to our website. If you go to MedinaEast.GraceChurches.org and you go to the Give It Away tab, all of the, the, the different partnerships that we have in our community and in our world and opportunities and learning more about disciple making, all of that is right there. I would encourage you to get connected to that. That's it. Here's one super simple step you could take towards being a peacemaker. One we could take together. Sign up for Love Medina. Sign up for that weekend that we're going to go and serve our community together. The reason we're doing that is because we want to be people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we want to be people who seek peace, who actually make peace, who are, who are willing to wade into the brokenness and bring God's love into those spaces. Mass ask the band to come up. And, um, and as they make their way up here, these Beatitudes these four, you might be asking, why? Why would we strive to be people like this? And I think, I think the true answer, the truest answer is this, because this right here, th- this is a description of Jesus Christ himself. This is a description of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because the Bible's gonna tell us that Jesus Christ was the one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus saw the brokenness of the world, and he was moved, and, he was, and, and it moved him to action, And the Bible's going to tell us that when Jesus came to us, he didn't come with condemnation. He came with mercy. He came to forgive, to seek and save that which is lost. The Bible's going to say Jesus was pure in heart. He was undivided in his devotion to the Father, even to the end. And the Bible's going to tell us that Jesus Christ was the ultimate peacemaker, that he, through the cross, through his bloodshed on the cross, he has made peace with us and with God. And then he rose from the dead. And I believe that what Jesus is telling us is the reason we'll be blessed if we live this way is because we're patterning patterning our life after the one who he himself is blessed. It's the life of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I do just wanna say thank you for just your powerful, incredible word that you've given us. We live in a world that tells us the true pathway to happiness is to pursue happiness, pursue comfort, to distance ourselves from messiness, And Father, it's easy for us to believe that that's true. And yet what you told us is the opposite. You told us that when we try to hold on to our life that we lose it, but it's when we give our life and we lose our life for the sake of others that we find it for the sake of you. God, it's so backwards from the way that we tend to think but I'm thankful that you have given us a picture of what it looks like to be the people of your kingdom. God, help us to be people like, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, I mean, that are desperate to see your will done in our lives first and in the world around us. But help us to be people who, don't just, who aren't just full of contempt and anger, but instead are full of mercy because you yourself were so merciful to us. God, help us to be peacemakers who are pure in heart. Help us to engage. Help us to seek peace wherever we can see it around us. Father, we need your help with these things. Thank you for your example to us in these things. As we worship and we sing, I pray, God, that we cry out to you together as a community. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.